Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Martin Nikos on the pod. Martin is the CEO of HackerOne and previously was the CEO of Eucalyptus Systems and MySQL, amongst other companies also that I haven't even mentioned. He has also served as a board member and advisor to companies like Nokia and Verizon Media. And so in this episode, we'll cover over 30 years of enterprise software learnings, challenges, and lessons learned surmounting them, and also how to effectively sell into a competitive market. So welcome to the show, Martin. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here today with you. Not trying to date you with the experience, but you know, it's just, you have a lot oh, of experience. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to correct you and say, you could say 36 years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to start off just like from growing up, you grew up in Finland. What was your path into technology and startups? Like from a childhood perspective, did you know this is what you wanted to do? Like, how'd you get into it? No, no, this is the weird thing. I haven't had much of career plans. I was not interested in technology and I'm still, I'm not a gadget freak at all. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I wanted to be a barrister up there arguing important cases, but I had no dream of technology. But somehow in my teenage years, I learned that the best thing a human being can do is hang out with great people. Like go where great people go and great things will happen. So you join the Boy Scouts because the great people are there. You go into a group or a class or a club because great people are there. So I realized I have to go to a certain university in Finland because I felt that was where all the great people were congregating. And so I went there. And the only thing you could study there was technology. So hence. <laughs> but technology was not my dream. And it still, it still is not my dream. I love technology, but the essence to me, therefore, technology to me is not an purpose of its own. It's just a tool for human beings. I think that has helped me in my life that I refuse to see the technology as superior or overly amazing, because I think human beings are much more amazing than any generative AI, LLM, or whatever. Yeah. You said you didn't set career goals or anything like that, but it did sound like you wanted to go to Helsinki University, if I'm remembering correctly. You wanted to go specifically there. So it sounds like even from childhood, you were setting kind of clear goals, right? Yeah, Helsinki University of Technology, let's be clear. It's a little bit like you said Berkeley, but I meant Stanford. <laughs> okay, like, okay. <laughs> Helsinki University is a different school. I went to Helsinki University of Technology. I was born on that campus. Both parents graduated from there. My two older siblings graduated from there. I graduated from there and my younger brother. So we were all from there. To me, it was just the coolest place, like a mix of MIT and Stanford on one campus and so many great stories about what they had done. So yeah, I did decide I wanted to be there. I didn't decide to be there so that I would be rich or famous or anything. I decided I wanted to be there because it would be so cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really cool, the, the history throughout the family. That's that's amazing. <laughs> no, it's, it's also bad because here we are trying to give advice to others. And then I have to say, screw that, Martin. It doesn't matter where you come from. You don't have to be born there. Like it actually is counter to my principles. I believe that human beings can do a lot of stuff that they weren't born to and that they didn't have a connection to. So Every time I say this, I also get angry with myself because I'm perpetuating some myth that you have to follow in your parents' footsteps. Okay, I did so. But I would rather see that people follow where they can be 
exceptionally useful, whatever that is. That makes sense. I want to dive into the uh, the MySQL, the MySQL days. And so, yeah, how did you, you can, end up? You can say you can say MySQL as long as you're a paying customer. Pronounce it any way you like. <laughs> uh, but 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 how did you end up meeting the uh, MySQL team, and why did you decide to join? Okay, so I start at Helsinki University of Technology. I am in the Department of Technical Physics. Seventy-seven new students there, five of them belonging to the same ethnic minority, one of them being the founder of MySQL, the future founder of MySQL. So we knew each other since the first day in college. Did they just decide one day, hey, we need to bring on a CEO? Like, how did that evolve? All us friends were just making fun of them. We say, what are you guys doing? Sitting there like two guys coding, three guys coding. You think you can make a difference in this world? I was working for another database company at the time or at some of the time. And I was very cocky and said, hey, Monty, we have 20 developers. You have just one. What is this? You will never succeed. He just quipped back and said, Martin, if you have so many developers, why doesn't your product evolve faster than mine? (laughs) (laughs) and he had a point he had a point so then fast forward i had run a company in the dot-com bubble and crash and the the company went belly up and bankrupt and i was recovering from that sort of getting ready for my next career step i got a call from them where they said hey martin we're sitting here in our kitchen thinking about the company and we think we need a ceo for mysql and we think it's you i remember i said no (laughs) Because I had an instinctive belief in how difficult and painful it would be to even consider it, which was correct. But also, fast forward, then there were other people coming on board. There was an amazing person who joined as an investor and board member and chair of the board. And I felt, okay, if he joins, I can join. I'm not alone. So then spring of 2001, I said, okay, I will join as CEO. And then when we did that, Even before we got the company established, before we got our first round of funding secured, we were sued by an American tech company. Crazy, crazy. Like a frivolous lawsuit. Had no merit whatsoever. But of course, that's a big panic when you're like four or five boys. We were men, but like we were so young in Scandinavia being sued by a publicly listed company in the United States. Both personally and as a company, we were sued. What did you do? Because that's like a very clear, oh shit moment, right? That's like a, I, <laughs> yeah. just, I just stepped into the frying pan, right? <laughs> I'm laughing at it now. I actually loved it back then because I told you I had wanted to be a lawyer as a kid. This chairman of ours, he was so smart. He said, okay, guys, now don't panic. Now muster all the resources we can. So we called the investors and said, good news and bad news. And they said, okay, what's the good news? I said, no, no, we start with the bad news. The bad news is we've been sued. The good news is we are cutting our valuation in half. You'll get twice the amount of shares, but you must not withdraw. <laughs> like this is the honor of the Vikings at play. And we had investors from Norway, Sweden, and Finland who say, nobody is allowed to pull out. If you pull out, you will have no future in all of Scandinavia ever. You must come on board. And they all came on board and we got $4 million as our first round of funding. We spent nearly all of it fighting, doing the lawsuit in the US. But ultimately, we came out victorious out of the lawsuit. It was settled, but to our benefit. And it was the best marketing campaign ever for MySQL. Everybody loved us. Everybody hated them. 
they were very coy and secretive. We published every email they had ever sent to us. And we could show that they had nothing to come with. They had been lying to us. They violated the GPL license. So, so now afterwards, I say, what a godsend that we got sued in that way. Because after that, there was no doubt that about MySQL. We were known in the world. We were heroes. We had defended the GPL license and free and open source software. We were superheroes. That is amazing because <laughs> a lot of founders would look at that and be like, oh my God, this is so scary. But turning that into a marketing moment, I mean, that's just amazing. Were you thinking about that at the time of the lawsuit? Like, Were you like, hey, I could turn this into something? We said our strategy must be one of absolute openness. So every night we would sit up at to 3 a.m., 4 a.m., writing documents, digging up old documents, saying, here's what they said, here's what we did, here's what it is, here's what the law says. So we published blogs after blog after blog after blog. So the whole world was following this drama. Like eat, they were eating their popcorn and we were doing the drama for them. But we had such a strong commitment to openness that they had no chance on the other side because they actually didn't have a case. And the more they spoke, the more obvious it was. So... I didn't know it when we got going, but I remember this strong feeling, this really this deep, deep feeling that don't mess with us. And although we were tiny, had practically no money and no experience, we had this fighting spirit from the very beginning. A little bit like you could argue Finland had 1939 when the Soviet Union attacked, or Ukraine has now when Russia attacked them. Like, no matter what the proportions of power and weaponry is, the one defending a noble cause always has 10x, 100x, 1,000x the willpower. And we had that at MySQL. And it was like now afterwards, I just, I love it. And we had the most amazing law firm from Baltimore who drove the case for us. And also they were sort of underdogs. They were not known as high-tech litigators, but they were perfect. So, yeah, it was a defining one and a half year for MySQL, but just crazy, crazy positive at the end of the day. (laughs) You were doing PLG before PLG was even a thing, right? You were doing open source before it was like kind of, I mean, it was known, but, but like really kind of became the modern thing it is. That's you in this modern generation. You need to invent some pretty acronym for everything that happens. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Acronyms don't make the business run. You can call it PLG or whatever. But at MySQL, we had, before me, they had very cleverly established the 15-minute rule. Today, 15 minutes is a long time. Back then, to install, we said, you must be able to download, install, and get going with MySQL within 15 minutes. It was unheard of. If you tried to use an Oracle database or Microsoft SQL Server, you had to be prepared for five days of installation and tuning and setting stuff up. We did it in 15 minutes. It was revolutionary. That was the PLG. The fact that you could do it so quickly, the product was practically bug-free because we fixed bugs so fast. Like, not me personally, but as an organization. Like, we had a very, very stable product, very easy to use. And... When people sent in questions about the product, say, hey, how do I do this? Or what's the syntax for that? Our engineers always immediately updated the reference manual and responded back and said, it's in the manual. So we got that reference manual that developed very fast. It was always online. Nobody else had their reference manuals online. They were all printing them on paper and selling them in like editions and you had to buy the new one. We had it live online. So when you Google for a MySQL error message, you find the answer through the web. 
So it was much faster. And that was completely unheard of back in 2000. And it's also why we could outrun Postgres, because they did nothing for usability and delightfulness and PLG, nothing. They just tried to build a complex product, as complex as Oracle. And we said, no, we have to build as simple as possible. So these are the things that led to this explosive user growth that we had for a long, long time. And it's still growing, not as explosively anymore, but the MySQL user base is not going down, It's, it's increasing. How'd you actually get those first few customers, right? Did they come in through that natural open source channel? Were you doing outbound at the time? Like, how did you go about getting those first few customers? Yeah, we had a sales rep who was the uncle, one of the founders. So he didn't know how to sell. We had a marketing guy who was a veterinarian. He was actually really good, but he didn't know tech. So it's not like we had a wonderful go-to-market machine, but we were so popular and our founders and technical experts were so active on discussion boards and mailing lists and stuff that there was enough drive among techies to get it going. And I remember when we got a contact from Compaq in the spring of 2001, I think, or maybe 2002, and we closed our biggest deal ever. It was over (laughs) $15,000. Like, MySQL had such small deal sizes. We sold a license here and a license there, like a few hundred dollars here and there. That was the business. The ASP, the average sales price, was so low. So, of course, if you're used to paying hundreds of thousands for Oracle and then MySQL comes around and works and the license was like $260 per license oh or something, <laughs> like it was, it was ridiculous. You should laugh at us and say, Martin, how could you be so naive and give it away when you should have charged something? But our naivety played the right way. It gave us the momentum that nobody else got. So it's not always wrong to be naive. Yeah. You kind of ended up having an open core type business model. Again, I'm using acronyms and stuff like that, right? But like, was that, hey, this is what we're going to do in a thoughtful approach and strategy? Or was it more of like, hey, this is just how the world's evolving. This is what we need to do. No, we drove it. We might have been the first one doing it. And it was rational and logical, but boy, was it painful to get everybody on board. So to wind back, when MySQL was started, it was not an open source product. So initially, it was closed source. Then in the summer of 2000, they decided to go open source and put it under the GPL license in order to get into the Linux distros, which at that time was the only way to reach an audience. So with that, they adopted something called dual licensing, which is a business model that GhostScript had invented. GhostScript was an open source printer, manager, software thing. And they used dual licensing. MySQL adopted the model and it served as well for the first several years. And at some point we realized this model won't serve us anymore. The usage is moving to the web. Nobody's shipping software anymore. We need a new model. Back then I said, okay, everybody, we will need commercial features. That's what I called it. Like we didn't call it open core. I said commercial features. I got everybody in the company against me. We hadn't even told the world. So we had these extremely heated internal debates. And I remember an all-hands-or-leadership meeting in Santa Cruz where we had 60, 70 people from the company there debating this. You felt like you want to leave the company and just give up because nobody could agree. And everybody said, if you do this, you are doomed. If you do that, you are doomed. If you do this, we have no money. If you do this, we have no developers. If you do this, you like whatever, wherever we looked, it looked terrible. Finally, we had a very devoted open-source developer from... Austria, Mike Zinner, who had built our GUI 
tool for MySQL. He stood up, maybe even stood on the table, I forget, but he stood up, really stood up and said, he has joined MySQL to make it a successful business. He loves open source. He wants to never develop anything other than open source. But even stronger is his desire to make the MySQL company successful. So he will now support the proposed model, and he's ready to develop as many commercial features as it takes. And when he said that, it sort of broke the stalemate. And then people said, okay, okay, okay. And soon we had everybody with us, and then we started building our open core model. But there were many who were ready to give up as we couldn't make a decision. And maybe somebody even gave up and left the company because they felt we were not capable of figuring out the business model that would work. But we did. And then later it started being called open core. And then people said open core is evil, open core is bad. There still are sentiments like that. But you, in open source, you have to believe strongly. And the fact that somebody hates what you do is sort of just, it comes with a trade. If nobody hates what you're doing in open source, then you don't have enough users. It's not possible to be super popular and not have detractors. Yeah. It's interesting because one thing you mentioned was, and I believe his name was Mike Zinner. You mentioned his name. You still remember him, you know, kind of having that moment, right? Like, is this something you found throughout your career that like one person truly in, you know, a scenario can make a big difference and have that impact? Okay. This is a philosophical question. Every person can in every moment have a significant impact. Always. We have agency. All of us have agency. We can affect the world and move planets and move the universe a little bit every day, and we should. So now when I mention Mike Zinner, it's true he was pivotal there. But let us also look at it philosophically. If he hadn't said so, somebody else would have. I will lift him up on a pedestal, but I don't want to glorify just one person because it became a necessity and somebody else would have done it. Like many things in life, we attribute it to one person, but actually the universe plays out such that it has multiple alternatives for how to make it happen. And like it, one gets the fame or the blame, but many others could have done it. And we saw it with Tesla and Edison that sort of independently of each other, they could have both done what was done. So I do believe that I like to remember the people who did something and I'm very thankful to them, but I'm not thinking that without them, it could never have happened. No, the universe would have found another path to the same outcome. Yep. I've heard you say that MySQL was like the IKEA of relational databases. And I just love it because it, it matches up so perfectly with your background and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But but describe what you mean by that. What what was the IKEA of relational databases? It was so true. It's much lower cost. You get it immediately, and there's some assembly required. You have to know how to use screwdriver and put it together. But you get it immediately. It fits in your backseat or in your car. Like you, you don't need to order any special delivery. You can get it the same day and you can buy many. And if you get tired of it, you go and buy a new one. It's sort of a consumable in a way databases have never been. Never. We used that analogy. We used another one as well. We used the one with I showed a aircraft and I showed first class, business class, tourist class. And I said, wherever you sit in the airplane, you arrive at the destination at the same time. So sure, you can pay for first class and pay for Oracle, but it doesn't give you any more speed or security. Right. If the plane falls, it falls, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's the same destination at the same time for everybody. And if you really want to fly for free, join the crew. 
meaning become an open source contributor and you can fly without paying. So we use that one and the IKEA analogy a lot because we we have actually decided, now we get into the topic of PR and building a brand. Our PR agency had smartly said, Martin, don't talk just about databases or MySQL or such. Become an expert in how to make money on open source because that's the big painful question that everybody has, and it has much broader applicability and interest. So that's what I did. So every time I presented or something, I talked about how to make money on open source. And of course, everybody knew I was from ISQL, but we got an audience which was much, much larger. And we got audience who were not just nerds and database geeks, but anybody. And it was brilliant. Like, I didn't come up with it myself, but it was brilliant. That's how we got into Fortune magazine, Forbes, all these prestigious media outlets who needed to have somebody come in and say, how does open source work and how do you make money on it? When I said that you were going to come on the show, people basically put out some questions. And one of your responses was basically like, hey, if you want to build a good open source company, like you just got to nail your brand, right? Does that have to be a controversial brand? Does it need to be something really bold? Does it need to be like, how do you think about that? I mean, even more than you are saying. I'm saying that the business model is brand dependent. When people say, how do you make money on open source? 90% of the people will go into a legal debate on GPL, Apache, blah, blah, blah. And yes, those are correct and relevant points, but it's not the main point. The main point is when you have a brand, the business model will follow. So let's look at Red Hat. Red Hat was originally a Linux distro that came for free. You just paid for the box and the book and the t-shirt that was in the package, but the distro was free, so it was for the community. At one point, Red Hat turned around and said, okay, we are pivoting. From now on, the words Red Hat may be used only when referring to the commercial product, not the community product. So sorry, community, thank you for all the fish, but we are going commercial, and you cannot call it Red Hat unless you have paid for a license or whatever they call it, whether it was a license or not. But you can call it Red Hat only if you pay. Similar model with Android. Android is a Linux derivative, so it's free for anybody to put on their mobile devices. But you cannot call it Android. To have the right to say my phone runs on Android, you have to sign a partnership agreement with Google that binds you to all their services and a lot of commercial things there. You still can get the operating system for free because it's GPL, it's a Linux variation, so of course it's free. But if you want to call it Android, you have to pay Google. So these are big scale examples, but it's true lower down as well that with your brand, you can guide the licensing question, the business model question to where you need it. If you have a very popular open source product, and then one of the cloud vendors starts offering the same thing in a hosted version. If they can't use your name, they're like, it's already your benefit because only you have access to the stuff by that name. That's why I mean that in open source, you have to be careful with what you call it and who owns the name and who governs the name. And does the name mean both the commercial and the non-commercial? Like at MySQL, we decided to always have just one brand. MySQL could be free or it could be paid depended on the context. Others split them up like Red Hat and CentOS or Fedora. So they split them. So it's essential even today, even if the economic environment of open source is different today, you're not dependent on Linux distros as you used to be, but this notion of the naming and the branding of it still is the 
linchpin of the business model. That's what I meant. Still on the branding side, I have a question for you. It actually comes from, there's an anecdote I've heard you say that Oracle at one point was trying to acquire a competitor that your team had been looking to acquire. And you know, all of a sudden, Oracle just goes and says, no, actually, we're going to buy them. And it won't affect the business or anything, but just don't worry. like We're buying them. You turned that from a moment of panic into a moment of strength. And so just talk us through, like, what did that feel like? And then how'd you take that into a moment of strength? Okay, Shamik, I thought we would talk about failures later in the podcast. This is my <laughs> failure. It is completely my failure as CEO of MySQL to not manage that relationship correctly. Meaning, in a DB, the most exquisite piece of software inside MySQL, arguably the best part, was developed by a single developer, also from Finland, and who we signed a partnership with, so we sort of built the business for him. We built everything. He built the code, we took it out to the world and made it famous. And we always had a casual conversation. Yeah, one day you should be part of us. And there was sort of nodding, but not no negotiation. When I started negotiating about buying them, he came back and said, we made offers and stuff and said, I don't know, I don't know what it's how much I should ask for it. I said, okay, but let's discuss, like, we'll pay you a good price and you'll get percentage in MySQL that we will keep appreciating. But he didn't, he got locked maybe by advice from somebody else. So he came to us and said, I'm going to do an auction so that I get the right price. And I said, Heike, we've been working together for years. We've built your business. There's nobody else you can trust but us. Like auction, why would you do an auction here? So I said, we're not doing an auction. So he did an auction, and the only one who showed up was Oracle. (laughs) So he sold. He sold for a tenth of what he could have made with us. So, of course, I had failed. Like, I had let my steadfastness of principles come in the way of just getting a deal done. So I thought my career was over. I thought, okay, I'll get fired now as CEO. They'll pick somebody else to run the business. But then it was my leadership team who rescued me and the whole company. I had been in London, came back to Silicon Valley. They came to my house on a Saturday and said, okay, Martin, you have really risked the whole company now and you've failed completely. So we are very angry with you. But we have joined this company to make it a success. And now don't go and hide anywhere. Don't sit there with your self-pity. Now lead us to success as you have promised. And then we spent the weekend brainstorming what to do. And on Monday, we launched the new partner program. And that's where I said these words to the press when they interviewed me about the fact that Oracle had acquired InnoDB and people thought the Oracle had done it to close it down. I said, trying to kill MySQL by buying InnoDB is like trying to kill a dolphin by drinking the ocean. How did you even come up with that? <laughs> well, our our mascot was a dolphin. Oh, that's, true, that's true. And I was giving the image that InnoDB is the ocean. Like there's an ocean of storage engines for MySQL. There's not just InnoDB. There are hundreds and there will be more. And we started a program to encourage people to build storage engines for MySQL. And soon we had a dozen of them. And it worked. And people loved it. So the next spring then when we had our user conference, we gave, surprisingly, to Oracle the prize of Partner of the Year. Oh <laughs> just, to, just to sort of, I don't know, in spite or sort of as a prank. But I must say here, we played this game with Oracle. But if you are really, really calculating, Oracle benefited always. Because if you have an 
ankle biter like MySQL attacking Oracle and everybody's with popcorn checking how David Goliath, how it is going. Maybe you think that it's ridiculing the big Goliath, which it did. But what people don't realize is that every time people discussed Oracle versus MySQL, they forgot that there was Microsoft and IBM in the market. They were the ones who suffered because they got no airtime. So although we sort of pretended to hate Oracle, I actually think Oracle was looking at saying, this is pretty fun stuff and the real strategic interest, which is to push SQL Server out of the people's consciousness, was happening. So it wasn't all that bad. It was amazingly good for us, but it wasn't all that bad for Oracle, to be perfectly honest there. That is still one of the most epic stories I've ever heard of giving them the partnership award. That's, that's incredible. We did. I remember. I remember their representative sat on the first row in the audience, as he usually did, and he was smiling. And then we said, here's partner of the year, goes to Oracle, and we forced him to come up on stage to receive it. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is amazing. But this is a branding moment where you talk about this David and Goliath thing. And so I'm curious, like, that's how it played out at MySQL. But with Eucalyptus and, and HackerOne, like, have you also gone about this strategy of having this sort of larger company or larger competitor that you're saying, hey, listen, this is who we're positioning against? Or how do you kind of think about that in the companies that you lead? That is a brilliant question because it is not like that, but there are similarities. So Eucalyptus, to remind the audience, was an on-prem implementation of the AWS APIs. So we built software so that you could run any AWS applications on your own server if you wanted to and move them back and forth. So for us, AWS was not the Goliath in David Goliath because we partnered with them, but we positioned with them and we told everybody you should use AWS and you are using AWS, but you need to have also your own corner where you have full control. And that value prop was incredibly powerful, except we had it 10 years too early. Like now everybody knows that you can't put all eggs in one basket. Back then, they were just so much in love with public cloud that it didn't fly. So Eucalyptus was started too early. Like the founders were too smart. They saw too far into the future, so they started it too early. At HackerOne, it's different. There's a big bad thing we are fighting, but the big bad thing is mm. criminal hackers, cyber criminals. So again, we are positioning against them, but we are not positioning against any commercial entity. We can position against China, Russia, and cybercrime. So we use the art of creating drama and tension and contrast to drive interest. And, And when you are building a brand, you must polarize. Like You must get people to either say they love it or hate it. It doesn't matter which one they say, as long as they say one of those. If they say, ah, pretty nice, that's not good enough. If they are ignorant, it's not good. If they don't care, it's not good. They have to care. Hopefully more love than hate. (laughs) It sort of does not matter because the emotion of hate is not far from the emotion of love. Like the opposite of love is ignorance, not hatred. So like I learned it at MySQL that some of those who seem to hate us the most were desiring to love us the most. They just couldn't. So when you see that, you realize that them hating you is actually, you're getting close to them flipping, and soon they'll love you if they can feel respected and heard and appreciated and so on. So I truly do not mind which emotion it is, but brand 
Although brand is about professional reputation, it always has a rooting in emotions. And you have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge that even if you're building some amazing piece of software that rationally can stand on its own footing, you have to give it an emotional charge if you're building a brand. Like we used the dolphin. We had the dolphin mascot at MySQL. And we did it because I asked the founder and said, hey, I need to get a logo and a mascot or something for us. And the founder said, I like dolphins because they are fast, intelligent, and kind. And in groups, they kill sharks. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, there it is. Okay, dolphin. Because we wanted a database that's fast, intelligent, and kind. And when the whole open source community is together, we can kill sharks. <laughs> and it's an emo- emotional charge. Like it is rational, but it gives people a reason to elevate MySQL from just a technical brand to a brand that you could love or hate. What I love about this is you are talking about very technical, low-level software, but you're evoking emotions from it, which is just amazing to see. Before we dive deeper into Hacker One, my colleague Ed actually had a question. And he was basically saying, you know, you've been early to so many markets, right? MySQL, Eucalyptus with Hybrid Cloud, HackerOne with Bug Bounties. Like you've been there creating these markets as they've just started. And so how do you manage that? How do you deal with that where you're just coming in and you're just like, all right, well, we don't have anything to go up against. I guess MySQL, maybe you had like a little bit of Oracle, but it's this new market, right? New market creation. How do you go about doing that? I think it is. It's correct. Meaning... It's correct analysis that I am that sort of person who will look for it and thrive in it. And sometimes when people say, Martin, why did you take that job? And I have to say, well, honestly, I'm a sucker for complicated, unproven business models that upon success become enormous. Maybe it's my ego, but I want to be known for having done something nearly impossible. Like it gives me enormous satisfaction even just to dream about the day when we get there and when i took the hacker one job i had so many friends that martin you have achieved so much in life take a big job with a big company don't risk it now don't do your crazy stuff and the shiny new object like don't do that go for something established and proper and i looked at them and said why but they were still saying it to me so i was doubtful i was like okay am i wrong now like am i misreading myself or not like What should I do? So I called an investor, Danny Reimer, who I think is a very good judge of character and who understands me. I said, Danny, I need advice. I'm looking at this small, unproven, impossible startup, and and I don't know if I should take the job or not. And when I explained it to him, he already knew about HackerOne. He said, Martin, that's so much you. You must take that job. So he sort of gave me the permission to follow my instincts and take the job. And it is true that I am good at working with communities of people who are too intelligent for their own good. That's a good way of describing it. (laughs) And high IQ doesn't come for free. It comes with a sort of a burden and a penalty. And giving such people a world that respects them, but also puts demands on them and sets rules, but gives freedoms, that's difficult. But I think I've sort of understand roughly how it should be done. So I loved working with the community around MySQL. I loved working with the cloud and open source community around Eucalyptus. And now the hackers of HackerOne, different stuff they do, but the same thing, that they are they're much smarter and 
more intelligent than any of us. But that doesn't mean that they would have everything sorted out in their life or their career or such. And we can give them a foundation or a platform where they can blossom and they can do much more. They can achieve much more than otherwise. And that, to me, is very, very motivational. And it is something I think I'm good at. I don't need command and control. I don't believe in secrecy. I don't believe in supremacy of any group over any other group. Like I really believe in human agency and human equality and building a level playing field and having rules to play by so that everybody can give it a try. Everybody is welcome to see if they can do it. You join HackerOne and now all of a sudden you're faced with the problem of, okay, well, I got to, you know, go out and find customers, right? And you, you have this hard problem where I don't think at the time people really knew what bug bounties even were. They didn't know it as a concept. They knew maybe pen testing, but to have random hackers be like, hey, go at it and see what happens. Like that just must have seemed crazy. Like the trust perspective, the like being afraid of what is this hacker going to do, all this sort of stuff. So talk through how'd you convince people? How'd you get those customers? Like what all had to happen there? I was unafraid of it because I had seen it at MySQL 15 years earlier. Same thing. Like I remember once I met the CIO of Deutsche Telekom and he said, Martin, you have a great company, but we are not going to use GPL licensed software. We have a ban on such software at Deutsche Telekom, so don't even try to sell us. And I said, well, if that's true, why did your colleagues download our product 50,000 times last month? (laughs) (laughs) So... You have to be a little bit obnoxious in the beginning is one thing. Like find the places where you can make progress. But I think this is why you need places like Silicon Valley. Like it is a place with much less prejudice, much less sticking to the past. And you have to get going. And you see so many companies who do it. They come here or they start in Silicon Valley because this is a place where you can get the first customer base going without having to deal with all the doubts that you will then later deal with. But at HackerOne, still today, it's 10 years into it, still today we meet customers say, okay, we appreciate you, we think you're doing a magnificent job, but we are not sure about the model or we're not ready for it. So there's still 10 years into it, there's still hesitancy. And I just take it as a challenge to overcome. And I know that in the future, everybody will do this. But you have to have a really strong conviction that it will happen because it's not like it happens overnight. You have to keep doing it and figuring out how to make it acceptable to them. But I like the work of trying to convince people of something they didn't believe in yesterday. I think it's a very interesting pursuit. It's very clear that you like to take on hard things. No, I like mostly easy things, but in some areas I like the hard things. <laughs> Otherwise, in my life, I'm lazy and convenient and just give me the easy way out. But business model, yes. yes. <laughs> but with HackerOne in particular, like it's not enough to build the software, which is hard enough as it is. But now you're saying, hey, you know, I got to go acquire customers. And oh, by the way, I also got to acquire the ethical hackers. And so you have this marketplace side of the equation that you have to deal with on top of the software. What side of that was harder? And maybe it ebbs and flows, like one gets harder at a certain point than another. But I'm just curious, like, was it harder to scale up the ethical hacker side? Was it harder to get the customers? Like, is it a constant balance between the two? Much harder to get customers than ethical hackers. And I like to talk about the recruitment of ethical hackers, but it's a little bit like the great spy agencies like CIA. They don't put 
job ads in the newspapers. They sort of know that if you have a spy's mind, you will also send in your application. It's a little bit the same with ethical hackers. We don't go out saying, please join us. We just exist and they find us. So it has actually been a beautiful thing to watch. When I joined eight years ago, our founder said, Martin, we have 6,000 ethical hackers. This is so cool. We have a giant community. I also felt it was giant. Today, we have 2 million. Wow. Oh, my God. And it keeps growing. But then the fact that you have so many makes it harder because now you realize that we have a little bit like Hollywood or NBA. Everybody is playing basketball after school at home with friends, but not many will get to NBA. And we have to find those who can rise all the way to the top. So when we have 2 million, we have to find the needle in that haystack. Now, we happen to believe that by letting the haystack grow widely, we have the best chance at finding the truly, truly great new hackers. And I think we are showing it and it's working. So it's not difficult to get hackers to sign up. It's difficult to then nurture them and find their particular skills because some are very methodical, some are sharpshooters, some take a shotgun approach, some are good at supporting others, some are good on their own. Like You have to start knowing how they operate to bring them to the work where they can be the most productive. So I don't think we're done there yet, but I do think we have done an amazing job over the last years to understand that thing. And then on the customer side, there's so many rejections. Like first, they don't know about it. Then when they know about it, they think it's scary. Then if it's not scary, they think it's not needed. Then if it is needed, they think they don't have the resources. Then if they don't have the resources, they don't have the money. Like There's like rejection after rejection after rejection until they come on board and then they love it. There you have to again have the conviction of the model that you don't let any rejection stop you. Like you say, okay, let's come back next year. Let's come back next year. And over time, everybody will be doing it. Just like with open source. With open source, in the beginning, the world said, you are really brave if you use it. Today, the world is saying, opposite. you're yeah. dumb if you don't. Right, yeah. And ethical hacking, the broader name here for everything we do, is going through that same phase. Now we have the US federal government mandating it. So you realize it's getting real. But we're still not fully there, but soon we will be at a point where people say, what? You're not using ethical hackers? How dumb are you? And then it will be, you are negligent if you don't do it. Yeah. So it's heading there. I think it's inevitable it will get there, but but you have to have this conviction. And we always say this platitude, it's a marathon, not a sprint, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> no, it's many sprints adding up to a marathon, something like that. But you have to be ready to play a long game when you do complex, difficult, improbable, unproven business models like this one. You just mentioned open source, and I'm curious, like kind of the open source parallels to stuff at HackerOne. One that I can think of is the maintainers is almost what you're describing as some of the ethical hackers that maybe are more knowledgeable in a certain area or something like that. And another area I imagine is something around, I'll make it up, but like if a hacker finds Log4j or something like that, then being able to expose that across the customer base, right? And be like, hey, listen, this is what we found. This is a big deal. Like everyone needs to be aware of that. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. There are many parallels. Another one is the transparency that goes around it, that there's an, uh, an ethos that you have to share and you have to publish, sort of the same as publishing source code. 
I believe that the strength of open source is not in some cohesion between every member there, but the opposite, that in open source, people who disagree vehemently can collaborate because they have created governance models that decide how to merge code without everybody agreeing. And it is a little bit similar in the ethical hacking world. They may not do things together, but they may disagree a lot. It's not that they all agree. Like Part of the power is in the disagreement and in the ability to think outside the box and find the unknown unknown. So there's a similar propensity that could be harmful, but when you build a system that actually turns it around, it is not harmful, but it is productive. Just like with in open source with foundations and using Git and using these various rules for deciding how to merge code, suddenly people who sort of will say they hate each other actually contribute to the same product. And that's beautiful. Like most other things in life demands that people are agreeable with each other. Open source doesn't and ethical hacking doesn't. So we can't do a podcast without mentioning the buzzword du jour of the year out there. And so could be of the hundred years of the millennium. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I, I'm guessing now where you're heading. <laughs> I just have to ask you, I mean, obviously, I think AI, I just saw a video of there's a YouTuber, his name's Mr. Beast, and he just posted publicly on his Twitter. He was just like, hey, this is a deep fake, right? That a lot of my users are getting and stuff like be aware of it. There was another attack that happened recently where someone's voice got spoofed for the employee after they got spearfished, their voice, the employee's voice got spoofed and that led to a bunch of credentials being exposed and so on and so forth. And so I'm sure this is something that you're thinking about, you're talking about it. Are you thinking about it more as, hey, ethical hackers use these tools and start using them to find those issues? How are you kind of thinking about how AI will change security? I think AI is a massive shift. And in terms of magnitude, it's not like the advent of the search engine. But in terms of how it will play out, it is like the search engine. Meaning, before we had search engines, we didn't even know we would need them. We were like, no, I have my books. I have my encyclopedia. I don't need the computer to give me answers. And we were wrong. We actually realized that we have answers questions every day. We Google everything today or whatever search engine we use. And we can't live without it anymore. And when you ask, so what is the search engine used for today? And you realize there's millions of use cases. I think AI will have a similar future. Right now, we are seeing just the beginning of the iceberg or the first parts of the elephant that we are trying to recognize. We don't know all the areas where it will have big impact. I do think in the tech world, we are so smart and educated. We look for the far out use cases because they intrigue our brain. They don't have anything to do with societal change. If we think about societal change, we should think about what Gen AI can do for the average human being. That will be much, much bigger. So that's where I think we will see a big shift. Of course, we have lulled ourselves into thinking that all scammers are from Nigeria and they speak poor English, so it's easy to know when a prince is asking you for a small payment. But that is done because you're right. ChatGPT and the other LLMs can now make any phishing attack, any spam, any scam. They can make it so natural with picture, with audio, with text, with contextual information that you will really be hard-pressed to know what's wrong with it. And it sounds really scary. Like you get a message that is from your grandmother and ask, saying something is wrong and send money. Yes, it will freak us out. Actually, I think we will quickly come to realize how to 
battle it. Like it's actually just the attritional scamming, how you fool people into doing things. And now the methods have become much sophisticated, but the defenses can also be sophisticated. So, so I think it will come. And then after a few years, we realize, okay, but AI also is the solution there. So I do think it's a manageable problem, although it's shocking now in the beginning. What we are doing at HackerOne is a bigger topic here. We're thinking that when people use more AI to produce things, they won't pay as much attention as they did. If you produce your own code as a developer, you remember every word you wrote. If you use a co-pilot to write the code, you may just accept it. Like, okay, it looks good. Let's go. So we will actually have more vulnerabilities in the code going forward because there's nobody really watching. And it's not like AI can find its own vulnerability itself for the philosophical reason that vulnerabilities are unknown unknowns. They are not known. They're not predictable. Some are, but many aren't. So there's sort of a limitation in what AI can ever do as in self-correcting itself. So I think there will be a much larger need for ethical hackers who come in and say, okay, I will figure out what's wrong with this LLM. And I think it will make defenses stronger, but also making attackers stronger. So there are many more areas. I covered just now a couple of them, but that's when you think about what HackerOne is doing. We're using now LLMs to automate our own work. We are expanding our customers' bug bounty program to put AI in scope. We did an AI-related program for Twitter two years ago looking for algorithmic bias. And if you are very specific into this, the OWASP organization has a new top 10 list of vulnerabilities in LLM specifically. And some of them look similar, many of them don't. So you have to learn a new area of technology. This is where our power of 2 million hackers comes in. Like we have hackers who know JavaScript and Log4j, and now we have other hackers who know AI. And there's an endless stream of them. And some of them are no older than 16, 17 years. So that's all they've ever learned. So we have a very strong base of skill that you won't find in any corporation because average age in a company is 35 years or 45 years. And we have this like, completely new, had learned nothing else, are not tainted by any other knowledge. I talk to a lot of CISOs and I can imagine they would all be very, very happy and fortunate to be able to have the data source that I believe HackerOne is going to have, not only with what the hackers will uncover, but also I think the novel ways that the ethical hackers use AI to do the bug bounties and to find issues. So, Yes, but you now said something a little bit wishful. You said CISOs would be very, very happy. <laughs> the, the hard part is the CISO job does not make you happy many times. You get a deep level of fulfillment and you can see in their commitment to the job that they really are like firefighters. They will do it even though it's a hard job. But it's not like you are happy every many <laughs> times in that job because just when you fix one vulnerability, you have to fix the next one. And you fix them all, then you have to ask yourself, okay, but how about those I am unaware of? So you can never relax as a CISO. I think that's a different topic, but we should show them extra compassion and understanding in the fact that even when fixing every vulnerability, they still have to worry about whether there's something that we are unaware of. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> um, uh, now, now I have to give all the CISOs like uh, you know some candy. Uh, or something. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, understanding. I think they just need understanding. It's not like they've taken the job voluntarily. It's not like they want us to 
pity them. They just yeah. want us to know how stressful it is. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot of founders, startup employees, and folks that listen to this. So I want to move to some startup advice. And one thing that I think you have done incredibly well over your career is you have joined after the founders have started the business as CEO. And I just want to understand how you're able to make that smooth because I've seen that not be so smooth or I've seen the founders kind of be like, ah, you know, like I want to be CEO, right? Like, I mean, how have you made that a success at now multiple companies? Good question. I'm sure there have been moments when the founders have thought about firing me or the board has thought about firing me and maybe it has never happened at the same time. So it hasn't happened. But if I just think about why have I succeeded a few times doing this, one is I am very proud of what I do, but my ego shows up in a different way. I don't need to get credit for everything. I, I do want every voice to be heard. I'm very particular about understanding the values that the founders have created. So when I joined HackerOne, I asked everybody, not the founders, I asked the rest, I said, what's the culture like at HackerOne? And everybody said, open and transparent. So like, okay, now I know. The founders don't have to tell me this. I know that transparency is a key value for them. Okay, I will then boost it and defend it and make sure we stay open and transparent because that's what the founders wanted. So I think I have an ability to sort of insert myself and continue their legacy even be long before they leave. Like they may never leave, but like continue what they intended in a high fidelity way. So I think that helps them. They say, okay, maybe he's annoying. Maybe he's making decisions we don't like, but at least he is pointing in the same direction as we intended. So I think that helps. And the fact that I'm good at building distributed organizations. So distributed in many ways, physically distributed, mentally distributed. I don't mind if some decision-making is happening in some particular place. I don't need to have command and control for myself as long as I know that the business is healthy and moving in the right way. So I think I give a lot of room and ceiling height for everybody. Like there's place in the business for everybody and they can act on their agency, they can develop, they can fulfill their dreams. And I'm not blocking any of that. And I think it helps sort of make it work. But it actually wouldn't work unless you had business success. Mm. Yeah. Like I'm sure if business success wouldn't happen, then suddenly everybody would have a lot of reasons to say why Martin is such a bad CEO for the company. But when there's business success, it forgives everything. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You mentioned the distributed, but I think actually one thing that I've heard said about you is the decentralized decision-making, right? The ability for an IC to make a decision when they need to or maybe want to is something that you really try and instill in your organizations. And so how do you go about doing that? Because that seems like such a freaking hard thing to do because everybody wants to be like, uh-oh, what if I make a wrong decision here? Like, I need to make sure I check with my superior or my manager or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's my character, my who I am. I have such belief in people. Like, it is my superpower. It's also my weakness. Like, I can believe too much in people. But I really believe that when you believe in people, if they are great people, you get 10x out of them. 
So I choose to believe in people. And every now and then I was wrong, and then it will be a terrible disaster, and I have to fire a bunch of people, and it's bad. But the net is always positive. The optimists always win. The ones who believe in people always win. So I believe a lot in people, and I believe in the small people. I believe in the ICs and that they can make decisions. And I've trained myself to allow them to make decisions, even when I disagree. I still let them do it because I'm thinking, okay, I disagree with them, but Maybe they are right, in case I should let them do it. Maybe they will learn, in which case I should let them do it. Mm. So I let them do it anyhow. And then sometimes I'm like, okay, I should have intervened. But in the grand scheme of things, no. Everybody will have a better life when I don't do it. So it's not ideal, Like, and I'm not an ideal leader or anything, but I believe strongly in this. Like I have these fundamental beliefs that, We are all the result of hundreds of thousands of years of Darwinistic evolution. So we are pretty strong. Like, if we weren't strong, we wouldn't have become human beings. We would have, like, Darwin would have killed us 3,000 years ago, but he left something alive. (laughs) So we have powers that we don't know. Like, even when we behave like snowflakes and we have all kinds of sensitivities and stuff, true, but there's also strength in everybody. And if we can evoke that strength, then it is more powerful than anything else. Are there certain decisions? I mean, obviously, certain decisions will, by its very nature, be centralized. But I mean, let's give an example. Let's say an IC is like, should I fire this customer or not, right? Maybe the customer is being disruptive and taking too much time and, and just not the right customer, right? That's a big decision, right? That can change the nature of the ARR for the quarter, like stuff like that. So even if you don't answer that one in particular, like, I'm just curious, like, when does it need to be centralized versus not? Good question, and I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I do think anybody who is a manager must have the right to fire people of their team. They should tell me or tell their leader, but we should not take away that right from them. Firing a customer, I'm more sensitive to, not because I wouldn't give them the mandate, but you shouldn't be doing it that often, because we are here to serve. Our job is to serve customers, and it's a very small portion of customers who don't deserve our wonderful services. So sometimes we have employees who say we shouldn't serve them because they're immoral or we shouldn't serve this customer because they did such and such. And I have to say that, tell them that if those customers are operating legally in the jurisdiction that we serve, then we have no right to judge them. If you want them to stop what they're doing, you have to act through the political system. You have to change the laws and make their work illegal or something, but we don't have the right as a company to judge. So getting rid of a customer, sure, there could be customers that are wrong in some other way, but they will leave anyhow because they won't get what they came for. So I see less of that. But of course, I see all the time small decisions made by individual contributors that I would consider wrong or ill-advised or something. And I think, okay, Martin, but it's a portfolio game. We have many ICs. Everybody's learning. And then we do retros. We do blameless retros at HackerOne, which I didn't know that practice before I joined HackerOne, but the founders are very good about it. And they say, okay, let's sit down, do a blameless retro. What happened? Why did it happen? What could have done be done differently? How should we act differently? And in the retros, they say, always look for how the system could have prevented it. Don't look for how to blame a human being. Sure, there's always a human being you can blame, but that doesn't advance the system. But if you say, how could the system be designed differently to prevent such mistakes? That's a very productive question. And we use it a lot at HackerOne, and I'm proud that we are so 
like not me, but our people are so good at doing retros and they write these beautiful documents and I can read the retro document and see how the wisdom is accruing. It's a very powerful mechanism and it can be used beyond technology. You can use blameless retros for anything. Yeah. You just seem to have a natural energy or optimism around you, right? Even how you, when you said like, do you describe what you thought about people? Like it's, you clearly believe that strongly. And is that what you think has made you kind of almost be resilient to the startup roller coaster? Because you have just these insane ups and downs, right? So is that is that what kind yeah, of drives it, it forward? Is. Okay. It is. Well, it's a totality of that. I don't know where it started. But like I once read this quote from, was it Voltaire, who said, I've decided to be happy because it is good for my health. <laughs> I'm like, wow, there it is. Like, you don't have to go on some course to become happy or read some books. You decide to be happy because it's good for your health. And then I try to practice it myself and say, okay, Martin, you can be grumpy. I can create a lot of anger inside me if I need to. <laughs> but, but then I realize that it's not good for my health. And then I use that reason to say, okay, Martin, be a little bit happier here about this. And it's good for your health. And then it also opens up the way to move forward. But don't think I'm always like this. I get excited in intellectual conversation and I sound like a true and true positive person. Of course, I can have my dark moments and I can be angry and I can be disappointed and I can be grumpy and I can, everybody can be all of that. And I think you have to at times. Otherwise, you become like a Barbie land person. <laughs> and although I love the movie, and I think the movie had a great message, it sort of also had the message that there's a fantasy world where nothing is authentic. It's just funny. <laughs> well, what I could say is you, you have the perfect shirt. We're not on video, yes. but wear the pink Hacker Was shirt. So. I have loved pink a long time, and now the Barbie movie has allowed me to make fuller use of it. And I can tell you, I'm very proud. Our CFO came to a company meeting with pink shoes, and I was blown away. And I was so envious, so I had to buy pink shoes for myself as well. I felt that if our CFO can wear pink shoes, then I can too. So, <laughs> yes, there's something very powerful with pink, like this happy, a little bit provocative pink. I see your uh, your next career move as CEO of Barbie Corporation. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> is it community driven? Then I would. Then I would. That's true. I, but I, something I, which is corporate, top-down designed, how the dolls look. No, 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 no. It has to be an open source platform, and everybody co-creates wonderful dolls. Yeah, then I could do it. That'd be a cool idea. Given all the success you've had, right? Like everybody will say, Martin, you are a success, right? You have done all these incredible things. I'm going to ask you a weird question, which is, uh, where do you think? You failed in the startups you've ran. You gave one example earlier, but like, is failure something that you feel like has happened multiple times in your career? If so, like, what advice would you give to other startups given that? I couldn't sleep last night because you fed that question to me earlier, and I really got worried how to respond to it. So now I've been thinking about it. I have failed several times, and I can, like any good marketer, I can make it sound really cool now. <laughs> like in retrospect, I can paint the picture of these beautiful failures. But the main thing I've started thinking about is that in my life, I guess it might be universal. The big failures are in the neighborhood of the great successes. So in life, there's some things where you learn that you shouldn't go there because you will not succeed. Like there's something you're trying to do and you will never get it right. 
and then it doesn't help. Like Peter Drucker says, you should focus on making your strengths stronger, not trying to get rid of your weaknesses. And it's a little bit same with failures. That some areas where you fail many, many times in a small way, maybe you should realize it's not for you. But if you failed big time somewhere, it could actually be the sign that you were very close to some wonderful success and there was a little thing that went wrong. And I came to this when I thought about my failures in business and one was the inner db thing that happened at mysql i could tell other things at other ceo shows i have and all of them when i looked at the list are situations where two strong powers are contrasting and i'm picking the wrong one and they all have been i didn't follow my instinct but i listened to a very rational voice and sometimes that rational voice came from myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have the capacity to have both instinctive responses and rational responses in our head. But many times it's somebody outside who has the rational side. And you, are, you would like to operate on your instinct, but somebody argues you down or sort of gets you believing in the rational part. And my big failures have been like that. <laughs> Like when I took my first CEO job ever, I was 34 years old. I'd signed up for the job. It was a startup, but it was a subsidiary of a bigger company. So the day before I was appointed CEO, they signed a collaboration agreement between the parent company and my startup. And they showed it to me. And I said, this is terrible. We can't build a company with this. This intercompany pricing is out of whack. And they said, no, Martin, this is so good. Don't worry. And you're so new. You don't know. You don't know this stuff. Like, trust us. We want the best for the company. And this is good. So they sort of overpowered me with their experience and rationale. And I was super eager to be the CEO for the first time. I should have said no. I should have walked out that day and said, I am not joining on Monday as CEO if this is the setup. And if I had done so, I would have been smart. We had a wonderful time in that startup. I made friends for life. but. The relationship with the parent company was so weird, like wrongly constructed, that it prevented us from ever succeeding. And I had that instinct. But I allowed rational voices to overpower it. Just to ask, because the EnoDB example, right? what could you have done differently? Like you did the right thing. You reached out, you said, hey, we're going to do this. I was too rational. I was too rational. I was like... Hey, did we do this? We do that. We can't do this. We are principled. I should just have gone to him and said, okay, just tell me what you need, whatever price or whatever price you get, I'll double it. I should have been in there playing my strongest Trump cards. And like I was trying to optimize, like, okay, we shouldn't pay more than 20% too much. I should have paid 100% too much. It would still have made sense. And my instinct sort of told me to do that, but all the rational voices from my own head and from other people's head were like, Martin, be orderly, do this, do that, offer this much, don't go further, consider the tax implications. Like we were overthinking it. Whereas the instinct would have said, hey, something is fishy here. We are not on the same wavelength. The deal may not happen. And I didn't let that instinctive knowledge come to the fore. I sort of let the rational thinking do. But when I say this, I also have successes where I do let the rational thinking win. So I don't want anybody to think that you always should follow your instinct. If I always followed my instincts, I would not be called a successful CEO today. (laughs) I would be nowhere in this world. So it's very dangerous to draw 
conclusions. But to me, it is these two strong powers. The power of the instinct. I have very strong instincts, but I also have very strong rational thinking, and they're both in my head. And I have a way of contrasting them, managing them. But sometimes if I let give too much to one side, it may actually tilt me just enough to make a mistake and lead to a failure. What just flashed through my eyes, there's a Wall Street uh, movie that came out recently. I think it was a margin call or something like that. And the CEO walks into the room and he's like, you know why I'm in the CEO chair? And everyone's like, no, why? And he's like, the only reason I'm here is to notice when the music stops or when the music keeps going. And he's like, that's it. And <laughs> yes. I have to make that decision. And he's like, sometimes that's instincts. Sometimes that's rationality. Like, you know, and yeah. I think that's, that was just, you know, exactly the, the actor. You could have been the actor in that movie. That was spot on. So. Yeah, it is true. And when we talk about advice, like I advise startup entrepreneurs and others, and every piece of advice has a piece of counter advice. And then it's, okay, why am I taking advice when I can't get any advice I need? I can say, okay, Shamik, never give up. Just keep going, never give up. Then there's another piece of advice that says, don't stubbornly keep going if it doesn't work. Pivot, do something else. Okay, so which one is it? So if you are a startup CEO and you think you will learn and get some golden nuggets here and advice for your next decision, realize that whatever advice any experienced person provides, you have to filter it and decide whether you think it applies to you or not. So I was listening to a podcast with Jensen Huang, the the NVIDIA founder CEO. He's so smart, wise. He said, I loved it when he said, don't listen to advice. Start from first principles and think your way through it. Because advice is always out of context, out of time, out of something. Like advice is so it may not be relevant to you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he took quite a few big risks with that business, but they played out, right? But but like, man, a lot of big it's risks. It's unbelievable. And then having this calmness about his demeanor and like they asked, how do you keep going? Like, how do you enjoy working so hard for so long? And then he said, I love work. I have loved every work I ever had. I loved it when I was a busboy. I loved it when I was a restaurant server or whatever. I love this. I love that. To me, there's nothing more wonderful than to have a job where I can produce something or something like that. And he said it so authentically. I don't think he was faking it. I think he meant it. You could go and be in Mallorca, Spain and enjoy life and have a sailing yacht. No, I couldn't. No, I couldn't. This is the, everybody says, you could do this already. Why don't you? Don't you know that none of us can? And it's not about me. Go to a Bill Gates or somebody and say, why are you not already taking it easy? Because you could, but they cannot. We are stuck with what we learned. And I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse or both, but we are a little bit stuck. And we don't want to stop doing it. We don't know how to stop doing it. And we worry that if we stop doing it, we would be become irrelevant. Because especially in the startup world, we are driven by some deep desire to prove something to somebody, to our father or mother or ourselves or whatever, to something something bigger than that. But we have some chip on our shoulder and it doesn't go away. Money doesn't take it away. So you are physically strong in a different way and you're not like the same. You don't have the same forces and capabilities, but you have the same desire to do stuff, which comes out of some need to prove something to somebody. And I don't think it easily goes away. 
That's the uh, best description of that I think I've gotten. So that makes a lot. I have a summer place in the area where there are people, there are fishermen and women, and I look at them and I think, whoa, they learn to fish, and then that's all they do in their life. They fish. That's what they know how to do, and they keep fishing as long as they can keep fishing. And when they stop, then they stop. But they can be very content. They know exactly what they're doing. They're masters at what they do. They know how to do it, but they also know how to enjoy it, and they keep doing it. And I'm a little bit like that. Like I learned how to be a CEO, so now I'm now doing you're, that. You're fishing, yeah, yeah. I'm fishing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a limitation. Many other people do many other things. They go into arts and they have fancy hobbies or they build something. I'm pretty boring. I don't have anything like that. It's not like I climbed some giant mountain yesterday or performed in a rock band or something. I I don't have other things. And this is sort of what I like to do. <laughs> well, uh, f- <laughs> fi- final question I have for you actually is, and this one I will ask for some advice. In this environment, every company is trying to figure out how to do go-to-market with constrained capital after years of excess, right? And so what advice do you have for teams out there? We will be having much less money for a long time. This is not something that's going away soon and we'll have our years of affluence back. So let's get used to not having much money. I have experience of B2B software, technical products, dealing with technical audiences. In that world, and maybe it's more broadly applicable, at least in that world, you must build inspiration and excitement about what you do. Some people say, oh, you must do branding, or oh, you must do PR, or you must do this or that. Those are the technical things, but you must build some meaning into what you are working on so that the message can carry itself through a few hops. And of course, as a founder, you're always selling. So you will be always promoting what you do, but you have to find a way of doing it so that somebody else will say, huh, I heard this person say this and it was so interesting. And you have to rise to a level of common interest. And that's how you get secondary effects, you can get PLG, you can get network effects, or at least viral effects where people say, hey, I heard about this startup and it sounds so cool what they do. And people think that it's some magical thing that some have and some don't. I don't think so. I think it's just rational as anything else. You have to find the deep meaning of what you do in an intriguing way. And if you don't have something like that in your business, then maybe your business isn't that promising anyhow. Like it's actually a test of the business. So you look at Salesforce when they started with Mark Benioff. Now you say, what excitement is their Salesforce automation? That's nothing. But he and they managed to make it the world's most exciting thing happening back then. Like they wove a story around it so that we were like, there was nothing as exciting as reading about Salesforce.com. And now you look at it, like, what, why would that area be <laughs> yeah, so exciting? <laughs> but it was. So it proves that when you find that way of storytelling and focusing on a topic that is of common interest to many people, then you can get that sort of attention. And then you still need to do lead gen and promotion and all of that, but it's easier because you have a, an in. There's an opening to the conversation. And we are seeing it at HackerOne. Thanks to our hacker community, we are known everywhere. Like everybody knows us because if you don't know us, you have a nephew who is a hacker or something like we are soon everywhere and it's helping us a lot when we come into customers we still have to do the selling ourselves but somebody has 
maybe not opened the door, but at least shown people that HackerOne is something. So that's what I would do. I'm an investor in a small Norwegian open source SDLC startup, and they do it. They count GitHub stars. They have a community manager. They say cool things that they think will garner interest more broadly. And it does. But it doesn't take a big team. Yeah. But it's hard. It's really hard. But you must see it as a pragmatic work. It's not like you can buy it from a consultant. And it's not like it's a magical thing that some have and some don't. No, you keep working until you get it. What I am taking away from this conversation, I hope others do too, is it's so interesting to me. Again, you are someone who has done enterprise software security, you know, just lower level stuff for a very long time. But everything you talk about is brand. Everything you talk about is positioning, is creating this fight, right? Is getting excitement. And it's very interesting. It's like you're talking about selling a consumer, you know, like a car or something, right? It's like you're creating this excitement around it, which I think is is very special. So, Because I've learned in Silicon Valley that consumerization happens. Whether we like it or not, we are learning. The B2B side is always adopting trends from the B2C side. And many in B2B don't like to admit it because we sort of tend to think we are smarter and more sophisticated because we're B2B. It's not true. So we should just eagerly, openly learn from B2C because what B2B companies often neglect is that it is human beings making all these decisions at the end of the day. And human beings cannot be unemotional. Like they don't know how to do it. They will not admit it, but they always are emotional, always. So you have to appeal to them on an emotional level as well. Well, with that, Martin, thank you so much. I mean, this was, I was very excited to do it. This blew away my expectations. We also blew away the uh, time that we had allocated. So I, I, I apologize. <laughs> this was amazing. Uh, and, and thank you for, for sticking with me. Is there anything that you would like to highlight for Hacker One that's coming up? We are going hard into AI. We are using it internally. We are enabling our hackers with it. We are enabling our customers. So that's an area which is super, super exciting. I'm just excited about the hackers who are coming in like there really smart, smart people. Like, what would this world be without ethical hackers? We would be nothing. We would be, like, miserable. I've been fortunate to meet the first person who jailbroke the uh, iPhone and stuff like that. It's just so interesting, right? They pushed the boundaries, but they made the world more secure by showing, hey, this is what could happen, and then people acted upon it. So I'm glad HackerOne exists to find a home for those folks and find a business model that works for them. So We have paid a quarter of a billion dollars to them so far. Amazing. Jeez. And we will pay more. <laughs> they are worth much, much more, but but we have a good start. <laughs> Quarter well, that, of a billion. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great questions. I hope the audience will enjoy it too. I'm sure they will. 